tonight we have um very very special guest who I guess will be introduced in a second um yeah the topic for tonight is going to be uh violence in the the christian worldview war and violence cover things from you know uh big scale war all the way down to personal self-defense um i'm gonna hand it off over to josh who's going to pray for us and say some other words i guess uh and then we'll eventually get into the meat and potatoes of it but just take it away whenever you're ready josh all right let's start with a bit of prayer and then we'll get right into it lord help us to apply your truth to every area of our life and thinking so that we might uphold it and defend it and also make use of it in our lives help us to understand the way you have patterned reality or to teach us about who you are how we are to live before you amen all right well we have a guest tonight as promised to talk about this very special topic of war and violence from a christian worldview our good mutual friend andrew uh he is as some of you are well aware uh formerly my co-host now seminary student and thereby the occasional co-host of uh, tropical study before it was tropical study in fact and uh here he is tonight to help us think biblically about this subject so andrew welcome and take it away your mic is so crisp nowadays it's uh different than the last time i was here Uh, i got a hand-me-down from okay he gave me his old one when he got a fancy new one that's awesome y'all gotta hand me down something pretty soon that's funny so uh tonight's topic i guess is talking about war from a christian perspective um i think it's uh I don't know. I think this is something that's probably increasingly going to be important to be important in our own lifetimes. Um, Not that wars, not that we've had a shortage of wars in the last couple of years, I guess, but um, you know, with uh, at least if you're in the United States, it's just not something that's been really on the forefront of our minds for, I don't know, maybe, maybe a few years or so. Um, I wanted to start out tonight just reading Psalm 144. Uh, it's a psalm of David. He was a uh, he was a warrior. He was a you know a king of Israel, and he wrote these uh, he wrote these psalms, and they made it up. They made it into scripture. Um, it's so this is the perfect word of God, and it's talking about um, warfare. So I just wanted to to open up with that. So if you have Psalm one forty four close to hand, you can look it up online. I'll be in the ESV, or if you have a Bible with you says, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. 
and this is, uh, you know, this is about to be pretty strong language here. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed uh, ten harp I will play to you. Who gives victory to kings? You think that's just political victory? Or maybe it's military victory as well. Who gives victory to kings? Who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword? Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut, from the, cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Amen. So I picked this psalm, obviously, because it starts out talking about war. Um, the, the Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war. And then in the middle section, it talks about how God himself goes to war on behalf of David, the author. He flashes forth, forth lightning and scatters his enemies. He sends out arrows and destroys them. And then uh, in the next section, it talks about, David talks about how he praises God for these things. God has rescued David, and so he lifts up a song with the with a harp. He, uh, he gives thanks to God for that. And then in the very last section, it talks about a civil and prosperous society where the plants are full grown, the daughters are healthy, the sons are healthy as well. You have full granaries. Um, you have sheep <laughs> pouring forth the thousands. Get thousands of sheep. Life is good in the ancient world. Um, and then the very last verse, of course, it says, Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And that's talking about, in many ways, uh, what happens when you have a, a society that is um, you know, successful in its endeavor in preserving you know, the integrity of, uh, well, the blessing that that the Lord has given to people. So I guess the, the question tonight is like the real material issue that we've kind of raised um, is, is war ever morally justified? What does the Bible actually say about that? And if it is morally justified, then when is it justified? So uh, I guess before I move on, Josh, do you have any questions that you'd like to shoot my way? Um, with what we've got so far, or should I just move on? Let me. Yeah. So the way that you stated the question is good. I'll, I'll state the way that I was, um, maybe to provide some extra framework to this topic, uh, what is war? Is it justified ever? If so, when? And so we could call it a uh, a just war, uh, a theory of just war. Uh, is there something to that? Is there ever a just war or are all wars unjust by nature? 
um, is just worth theory more than just theory? Can we establish principles about engaging in war in a good and godly way from scripture? Cool. Great. Very good. So I guess the first question is, what is war? And then the next one is, is there ever, can there ever be a just war? Um, yeah, so when I was thinking through this topic, uh, th thinking through how to define war is kind of like, it's kind of difficult if you think about it, because it's one of those things where you know it when you see it. Um, we see it portrayed in like art and movies and shows and like, you know, commercials and stuff like that. But when you're trying to nail down what it really is, I mean, it's basically, you know, it's a use of deadly force by a civil authority to coerce an enemy into compliance with a given like policy or a given cluster of policies. And it's the kind of thing, like I said, it's kind of widespread. It's all over, um, you know, our movies and media and Infinity War and all the things, human history, um, you know, it's consumed men and nations and it's also saved the world a couple times but i guess the question is when we when we think about this as a christian what is it is it a creational good is it a necessary evil is it a sinful development that comes out from the fall um or is it a response is a is it a good and proper response to sin that happens in, you know as a result of the fall um so I think thinking biblically about this, we have to remember first that we're dealing with, um, you know, God is the one who has spoken about these things and has shown these things and created these things, and he's not in discord with himself. Uh, he's morally perfect. God is a God of peace. It says this over and over again, you know. Um, God is the God of peace. Romans 15.33 says, may the God of peace do something. Um, and we'll, we're going to come back to what the God of peace uh, will do in our lives when it says that. It also says this in, you know, Philippians and First Thessalonians and Hebrews. That phrase, God of peace, is all over the New Testament. And also, we know that God is morally pure. There's no darkness in him at all. So First John uh, 1.5 says that. So God is morally perfect in his being. Um, so he's not going to command people to do something that's evil and wicked. We also know that just strategically speaking, um, a house divided will not stand. Jesus tells us this in the book of Matthew. He says that a house divided against itself will not stand. Um, and so, you know, if God is going to accomplish his purposes on the earth, he's not going to tell you something contrary to the way he wants it done. So when you're thinking about God at sort of one level, and you're thinking about the creation on another, um, it's, it's good to take a look at what the creation is like in Genesis 1. And it's, you read the text, and it's very clearly full of harmonious structure, and it doesn't seem to warrant any conflict. There's no occasion for war. There's no, why would, why would anyone be, why would there be warfare in the Garden of Eden, um, the way that it's described to us? And yet, crazily enough, there, there is a war that is introduced in, into that very situation in chapter three. But up to that point, um, creation was good. And it was, you know, not fully stable yet. And I guess we'll probably unpack a little bit of what that means tonight, but um, it was it was good. 
but then the temptation was introduced and then it's uh, goodness was up for grabs so satan enters the garden in the beginning of genesis chapter 3 and he tempts adam which is a, you know it's a move of uh trying to subvert god's authority and he is successful in doing that adam ends up falling and what results in Genesis 3.15 is enmity or a battle or a warfare between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And that is the, that is the important issue that's going on when we see warfare, violence um, in history. It's, it's, not, um, it's not just about, you know, good versus evil in abstract terms. It's about... Um, God's people versus the enemies of God. Um, that's what war in history is is really importantly what it's all about. Um, and then it also says that uh, it also tells us why there are illegitimate wars. Um, if you know, if we can speak in that way, uh, the other the, the reason for these wars is um, that you know there are limited resources and that they're that sin has entered man's heart and now uh you know he fights for things that he doesn't need that that he doesn't need to he's acting out of his sinful evil nature um but on the other hand it's it's proper for us to see war as a good and necessary response to evil in order to stop it it's not actually an evil in and of itself some people have said that it's a necessary evil but i think it's actually better to see it as a good and necessary response to evil um, it doesn't mean that we always do it perfectly, um, because in, you know, because of the fall, man now turns his sword against God and his neighbor. And we see this play out all over Genesis. But at the same time, the people of God were called upon to fight battles in the name of the Lord. Noah, you know, after the flood, he's charged to wield the sword and to shed the life of any man who sheds the life of another. And that's in Genesis 9. Um, and in my mind, this demonstrates that there's a such thing as a just divinely sanctioned use of the sword, a use of coercive force or a use of killing, um, which means that not all killing is morally equivalent. Some is unlawful and evil, and some is actually necessary. This is what the Bible is teaching about this. Um, now you go on and if you keep reading the Old Testament and angels, God has angel armies. You read the, the Battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 5. And there's a guy there named the angel of the Lord. And he, uh, Joshua, who's leading the army of Israel, he looks at the guy, he sees all these angel armies behind him, and he bows down and worships him. Now we find out later that this is actually Christ um, before the incarnation. And so Christ is the leader, he is the commander of the armies of God in this battle. And if war is evil, <laughs> then that means Jesus is a wicked sinner here. It means that he has no he has no business doing that sort of thing. Um, but you read earlier, and and um, you know that that land is sort of redemptively promised to the people of Israel. It's promised to the seed of Abraham, and therefore the the war that's waged against it against the people who live there is actually legitimate. Um, so that's a, that's a good just biblical example of war um, of of a of a just war and we haven't even really gotten to the principles yet but we're just kind of poking through biblical um the biblical data right now i guess what is what does the bible sort of present about it 
Um, so you keep going, you have judges, and it talks about the time between Joshua and King David. Israel is in the land, but they haven't they haven't actually successfully, they haven't had victory <laughs> over their enemies in in that land. And uh, they're kind of dealing with that for the entire uh, the entire book of Judges and then ultimately until their end. Because they're taken over by foreign powers. Later on, you have David, um, who we've already talked about. He fights wars and wins them, and he does so for God. God tells him to fight wars, and he does it. So if it's immoral, um, you know, then David is in sin. Clearly not. Now, up to this point, we've only been in the Old Testament. You might think, oh, that's the Old Testament. We're in the New. Now we're supposed to turn the other cheek. And we're going to get to that phrase. But for the time being, you have to look at, a, you have to look at New Testament passages. Like, look at Romans 13. People have talked about that a lot recently in light of um, lockdowns and stuff. But in Romans 13, Paul says that the government is an avenger who does not bear the sword. That sword we talked about from Genesis that Noah uses to, um, you know, rightfully, uh, you know, wield power. It's used to carry out wrath on the wrongdoer, it says. And in this passage, Paul is using these truths to tell the Romans to submit to the government and to pay taxes to Caesar. Um, but he's doing so because he's saying Caesar is a legitimate authority. But we shouldn't miss the fact that the basis or the grounds, Paul saying that to pay taxes, is that the civil government is a servant of God who cares out the wrath of God by punishing wrongdoing. And again, that's from Genesis 9-6. And this means that not only capital punishment is, with, is within the bounds of its, um, you know, of what it's able to do and what it has to do, but also waging war um, outside of its boundaries against evil nations uh, is something that it's that that a, that a government is it it is uh, warranted and sometimes even necessary to do. So, I guess the crux of the issue is like, is a, can a war ever be just? And I guess the answer we have to look back at our psalm that we read at the beginning. God wouldn't train our hands. He, he wouldn't. God wouldn't train his servants for war if war were just an evil thing and could never be just. More than this, we also see that sometimes it's necessary to go to war, and it's evil not to go to war. Um, you see that with Joshua and with David and with the, all, the other guys that I mentioned who went to war for God. And sometimes it's actually evil not to go to, to war. Like in Exodus uh, chapter 1, you have this new pharaoh. Israel is sort of um, blah, you know, it's, it's growing up um, in Egypt's boundaries, and the new Pharaoh doesn't want to go to war with them, because if he goes to war with them, then he's going to lose, because they outnumber him, and so he's, he starts a soft tyranny toward them. He starts to persecute them. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a such thing as an unjust war, for sure, but um, God also sanctions warfare over and over again throughout Scripture, and if it's just plainly sinful, then that means that all these people who God told to go to war, God told them to sin. He actually led them astray. But we know that God is morally perfect. We said that at the very beginning. So God, he's, he's not going to be transgressing in doing this. Um, God doesn't sin if he, if he himself goes to war. And also, when he commands people to do it, it's actually sinful for them to disobey. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, nowadays... God is commanding America to go to war, to cleanse the world spiritually from 
I don't know, people who don't have like oil or something like that. But at the same time, he's given us scripture and that teaches us the moral parameters of war. He's, he's given us like enough scripture. He's given us enough in his word for us to be able to see um, what the moral, like what the ethical parameters are for war and violence. So not only is it a thing, but also he's taught us about the thing. Josh, are we tracking? Yes, we are tracking. So if I'm understanding everything so far, the short version of your answer is that uh, there has to be just war because God himself in the Bible describes himself as a warrior and he trains his servants for war and sends them into battle. And if they're if war was inherently sinful or inherently evil or inherently unjust as a concept, then that would make God a sinner. But we know that God is not a sinner. Therefore, war is at some level permissible, uh, even lawful, even just, even necessary, a necessary good to bring about justice in the world. Um, a lot of the examples you use, as you just pointed out, are, are examples, though, of, of God directly commanding people to go to war. Not all of them, but, but many of them. We don't have that scenario today, despite what anyone in charge of a, any particular nation might claim. Uh, so since that is not the case for us, uh, if, if you were, uh, Andrew, a leader a Christian man leading a nation, how would you figure out when we could go to war and how war should be waged? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's not spelled out black and white. Um, in the year of the Lord 2023, thou shalt go to war with, you know, <laughs> country XYZ. That's, that's not how it works. So you're right. I, as a As a leader, you know, leaders of nations do have to deliberate this stuff. They have to figure it out, like, when it's appropriate to go to war and when it's not. So um, I think that because there's not a direct divine, you know, spelling of this stuff out, we, we kind of have to look at the, the principles that are contained in Scripture. Traditionally, you know, this is kind of where just war theory, quote-unquote, in philosophy comes in. You have guys like St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and other folks who are named saints by the Roman Catholic Church and not Protestants, uh, kind of talking about things. Um, so they, I think they, how do I say this? I think a lot of the time they're dealing with it as though it's a necessary evil. And so they're missing, I think, a lot of the biblical teaching on it. But um, nonetheless, you still, I mean, still have to deal with it, whether it's a necessary evil, like in their view, or a positive good, like in mine. So, okay, let's say that, you know, we're trying to figure out whether we should go to war. You know, I'm, I'm in charge of a country. We'll say that I'm not just a, a leader, but I'm the one and only leader. I'm a dictator of this country, and I'm king for a day. Um, do we go to war or not? Well... These are the considerations. You gotta look and see whether you're, go whether you're doing it for the right reasons. So is it a just cause? Is it, is it a good and right thing? 
And I think um, Genesis 3.15, which we mentioned, is the foundation of that. Um, am, I, uh, am I going to be <laughs> securing the good for the people of God? Or am I going to be selfishly uh, trying to get people's resources? Um, am I going to be selfishly defending my nation from something evil? So uh, the idea of a just cause, it has to be, I have to be fighting for the right thing. It has to be legitimate. Um, so, you know, what are legitimate and illegitimate things? Well, you look to scripture to see what that is and you see, <laughs> you, you check your own motivations. Are my motivations preserving uh, something like chattel slavery, like racialized slavery? Well, that's probably not something that's really worth fighting for because, um, you know, scripture doesn't, it doesn't actually protect, you know, in, in Israel, slavery isn't something that's like legally, um, you know, protected as an institution. It's just sort of assumed to be the case. And then there are ways to limit the evils there. But let's say I have a really evil system of slavery in my country. Nothing that's ever happened before. Is that something that's worth fighting for? Well, no, biblically. Um, but what about, okay, this is more complicated. What about if I am kind of, you know, self what if I'm a country and, you know, there's foreign country that's like instigating and trying to attack and occupy me? Well, I do have legitimate, I have to answer to my, you know, the people that I'm leading and be like, well, there's a reason that these people are uh, invading us and it's because we don't have sufficient defenses. Um, and I think that just, you know, it just looks different at different times. You have the Civil War. <laughs> Some people kind of call it the War of Northern Aggression, which I think is interesting. Um, I mean, that's a that's an interesting historical question. I'm not a historian, but that is what people call it. So they try to frame the American War of the States that way. But also you look at the War of Independence. Um, kind of before then, like England was instigating a battle with the United States because they were setting just laws over them unjustly. Well, I mean, fighting for the legal, you know, legitimacy, I guess, of America in that case, doesn't really, I mean, it doesn't really seem like it's wrong for them to preserve their side of the, the contract that they had made with the crown. <laughs> like I said, that's an interesting historical question, but the bottom line is that the grounds the end to which I'm striving has to be legitimate. Another consideration is going to be the cost um, and the benefit. So that's going to be things like, is it a war that we can actually win? <laughs> What's it going to cost? Is it going to cost us billions of dollars? Is it going to cost us hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions of lives? Now, Israel had the benefit of, you know, the guarantee that they would inherit the land. Um, God told their ancestor that in Genesis 12, um, God said that to Abraham, that they're going to inherit the land, like, for sure. Uh, but with us, the it's not as crystal clear, so we have to use discernment and, you know, again, consider the factors. You think about that, like, uh, you think about the atom bomb, it saved years of fighting and maybe even millions of lives in World War II, but was it really worth it? Um, was it worth all the, the loss of life for the other side? Um, so that's, that's cost. That's the cost-benefit analysis. And it doesn't all reduce to that, but I do think it's an important component. 
And then the last consideration is necessity. Is, is the war really necessary? Is there a way to get around it? Um, and you look in scripture and war is not the thing that's, people don't just do that every single time. They don't just pull the war lever because um, they have a dispute. So you look at um, David in 1 Samuel chapter 1, he acts like a crazy person because he goes to a town called Gath and Saul, the sort of rival, he's the king of Israel and you know David is supposed to be the king at some point, but he's not yet and Saul's still alive, so he's trying to kill him. Well, Gath is owned by Saul's cronies and when David shows up, he just acts crazy instead of like trying to fight them and they let him go. Like, they, they let him go free. And in the next chapter, he goes to another town so that he can gather forces and fight another day. So you see there, David didn't have to wage war. He he found a kind of clever way around it. Um, other examples in history are like, you know, was opposing Hitler with military force something that was necessary? Well, they tried, they tried appeasement, you know, in the allied powers tried appeasement for a while and that didn't really work out so great because he was a liar. <laughs> um, he would not be appeased. So they ended up having to go to war. Um, but on the other hand, sometimes, you know, our America has jumped the gun, um, at least in my estimation. Different people disagree about this, but in my estimation, you know, the Vietnam War, it could have been avoided um, with some with at least some more diplomacy and, and you know political means rather than jumping to force. Now we don't know that the conflict could have been avoided in the final analysis, but we also know that we could have exhausted other avenues before resorting to that. So um, the question of necessity, I think, is super important because um, if there's another way um, to accomplish the the just cause, like if you can, you know. If America could have worked out a deal with England to where they wouldn't have to go fight each other and they could both sort of preserve um, their integrity as nations, that would have been actually better than going to war. But the, the problem is that just was not on the table um, for plenty of reasons. But um, given those reasons, I think it was permissible actually for the states to, uh, to declare war. Um, and again, I think that was in a lot of ways using biblical reasoning to sort of consider the evidence and weigh things and discern and use wisdom. So that's kind of the question of like, do we get into war? And that's different than the question of what do we do once we're in war? Um, but I wanted to pause Josh and ask if you had any questions about that section. Um. I, I do. Well, I, 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 I have a question about the next section. So I'll save it. Okay. <laughs> until you've explained, because you, you may address it. Okay. But I will save my question. Continue. Let's move to right. the, the use in bellow. Yep. That's the name for it. That's the fancy name for. Um... I'm the dictator, I have declared war, and how should I conduct myself? <laughs> the use in bellow, as the, uh, the philosophers call it. Well, uh, there are more, uh, with, all, with the previous list and with this one, there are, a bunch of, there are a bunch of principles that I've sort of tried to collapse into just memorable ones. So for this one, I have discrimination, proportion of force, and 
parsimony of harm, parsimony of harm. It just means like thriftiness or cheapness, reduction of harm. So the first one is discrimination. And that just means, are we fighting soldiers or civilians? Who's fighting the battles? Who are we sending to battle? Who are we engaging? This is kind of the, the same question as the atomic bomb earlier. Um, was it right to kill all those civilians in order to you know, stop Japan? Well, um, <laughs> it depends. It depends on a lot of things. Um, I want to leave that question open. Uh, but also, in Deuteronomy 20, verses 10 through 15, uh, Israel, God is sending Israel into the promised land, we mentioned earlier. They're going into Canaan, and God says to spare the women and the children in the cities outside of Canaan. Um, so there's basically, once Israel takes over the land, then they're supposed to go out from that land and to basically expand their territory into the rest of the world. Um, because God's vision is always for world con conquest. You know, his people are always aimed at nothing short of the gospel going, uh, from sea to shining sea. Um, the Israel was supposed to expand out into you know other territories, and if you come across a city and um, they don't agree with your uh, terms of like, hey, we are God's people, this is rightfully our land, um, then you know, and they want to fight. Then when you fight those people, you actually preserve their um, their women and children and their livestock and stuff like that. Whereas this was not the case for the Canaanite cities that they were coming, that they came across like within the land. Um, so they actually, because of the special, I think, you know, redemptive historical time that they were in, um, once they went into Canaan and took those cities, they, God told them not to preserve anybody there or any of their livestock or anything. So they're supposed to kill everybody, men, women, children, um, old people, which is really, I mean, it's a hard pill to swallow for us, but I mean, these people were, I mean, they deserved it. <laughs> they were evil and wicked and uh, they hated God and it wasn't their land. Um, and they were, uh, they were just, they were guilty. Um, they were not, it's, God was not upset with them because they stayed up past their bedtime. They were committing gross uh, atrocities, completely wicked. So God says um, to the Israelites, once you go into Canaan and you come across their cities, don't preserve anything because you don't want their idolatry to get into your camp. Um, and I think that, again, that's kind of particular. I think it's a picture of preserving moral purity in the church and in the believer and stuff like that. So I think that's kind of important. So discrimination, uh, it matters. There are counter examples to that in scripture, but I, I tried to address that with the sort of particularities of the time and um, stuff like that. So discrimination is important. You want to send men out to fight. Um, which I believe there's a there's going to be a question about that later. It's it's not proper to send women out to warfare. We'll just drop that bomb and move on. No pun intended. Next one is proportion of force. Um, what is proportion of force? Well, the question is: Are you are you trying to win or are you trying to? Um, let's see. What's the question? Proportion of force. Are you using the right force in the right places? Um, are you using a baseball bat to kill an ant? Stuff like that. And then there's um, reduction of harm and 
scripture talks about this specifically in Deuteronomy 20. It talks about warfare. And there it says to spare the trees. When you're when Israel is sieging the city, they're supposed to keep the trees alive and not to cut them down. <laughs> Which means that a slash and burn kind of total war model is not appropriate. Because um, you think about it, they're supposed to be inheriting that land. They're supposed to be, um, you know, passing it on to their children after they've won. And it doesn't really make sense to pass on the sort of you know desolate landscape. It's kind of funny because in, in the text, that's not the reasoning it gives. It says, it basically says, you're not fighting the trees. You're fighting, you're fighting the enemies. Uh, <laughs> so don't, you know, leave the trees alone, basically. Um, so you want to, you know, not necessarily destroy entire cities at a time or do this whole slash and burn thing that, was it Russia against Napoleon or something like that? They had like a scorched earth policy. Um, that is not a, I mean, it's just bad. That's poor form, bad stewardship. If everyone did that, then we would just have a nuclear holocaust and we would all destroy the world and all die. So you can't have that. Um, so that's kind of the last, the last one is kind of the reduction of harm. So yeah, I'm, I'm the military dictator leader and we're going to war. These are the, the principles that I'm sticking to making sure we're fighting the right people, making sure we're using the right force in the right places, and um, also making sure that we're not destroying the world in the process. All right. So let's, let me throw a question your way about fighting the right people, because this is a question that has arisen really in the last, in our lifetime, really, um, as the U.S. in particular, but other countries as well, as they've sent troops to, to aid this particular fight. I'm not going to go into the legitimacy of being there or fighting the particular war. We're already in the war. So mm -hmm. thinking about just practices within the war itself, um, I, I don't think that the, the actual initiating the war probably was not done <laughs> properly. Um, but you know, you, you and I grew up, well, you, yeah, 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 you, you were alive, um, yeah. post nine 11, you know, I was in elementary school, saw on TV when it happened, then we're going to war, but we're go going to war against a particular nation. So in the past war is primarily done nation versus nation. The soldiers have uniforms so that their civilians don't get shot <laughs> you know and the, the the uniform soldier is for the purpose of hey you're fighting in their land and you can tell the difference you that's the person you're supposed to shoot but we don't we, we both kind of agree together as to fighting nations to not kill each other's civilians indiscriminately mm -hmm. those lines begin to get blurred as far back as world war ii as cities are being bombed the as you pointed out the the, the nuclear bombs being dropped uh, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, those begin to blur those lines, but those are still nations. Wholesale, the leaders of those nations are consenting, in a sense, to war with one another. Here you have a series of different countries who all have these uh, th these militant groups within them that a different country are fighting 
within mm-hmm. the, the borders of another country. Um, how do you process that from a just war perspective? Uh, this is one of those interesting questions in my just war class, because I took a uh, just war class in college. Um, this was the most interesting questions, I thought, because it it really was something that the original just war theorists like Augustine and Aquinas never had to really think through. And it's something that uh, I was curious about how you would uh, process that dilemma. Yeah, so it's kind of it's interesting that they that at least Augustine did not, because by the end of his life, his um, his hometown would have been taken over by a bunch of warring tribes, by, by, by the Goths, you know, <laughs> these Germanic tribes that would sort of, they were picking off the Roman Empire a little bit at a time. So it strikes me as kind of weird that, um, you know, they wouldn't consider fighting non-nations because those people groups and stuff, they weren't really organized as nations. They were just kind of wandering, uh, you know, they were vandals. <laughs> That's the name. They just vandalized things, um, which is not to, I guess, downplay it. But also, you think about how Israel is warring. You know, Israel goes to the Promised Land, and they are warring against quote-unquote nations, which are kind of organized around these cities and stuff. But there's no mutual. I mean. There's not really any mutual consent on the part of, like, Pharaoh, for instance. He doesn't want a war <laughs> and, uh, you know, ends up turning around and wants to have a war and then gets one. But it's only after Moses kind of uh, tries to escape and then God kills all the Egyptians and stuff like that. Um, so that's that's like a nation that's, you know, he, he comes around and ends up wanting to start a war. And then the nation goes with it, and then they're all kind of punished. But I think the the land of Canaan, like, they were opposed to God himself. They weren't necessarily opposed to the people of Israel. So, I don't know. That's kind of the, the particularity of that case. But I think that it shows, though, that um, a legitimate nation or an organized godly nation can actually wage war against a non-nation as long as it's like a big enough threat if that makes sense so in our day we have you have these different groups for instance in the middle east or in africa who are um, really threatening the population of those people now i think it's a case-by-case basis as to whether we decide to go in and assist um, the establishment or the who we think are the good guys in these countries or, you know, however you want to chop that up. But I think it's actually, I think it is legitimate, um, particularly, particularly in certain Middle Eastern contexts. I want to keep it vague because um, my, my facts aren't super sharp. But, you know, let's say that you have the, the country itself, um, we'll call it Blankistan. They have a legitimate government that kind of wants to be at least, you know, chill. They don't want to attack other countries. And Blankistan has this group of people, um, you know, a large contingency of, like, violent men who cause problems for everybody. I think it's perfectly appropriate for Blankistan to, like, try to police their own 
police themselves internally and then actually to call upon external help to to like do that um i think the external help that you call upon you know at that point they can just you know they decide is this worth doing is it not is it the right thing or not um you know is it good for our relationship is it good for our own people is it just going to be a waste of time but i think if blankistan you know needs the help and they seem to be a country that we can kind of work with for uh, preserving preserving peace and actual peace and you know like the way that <laughs> scripture describes it which is a thriving uh, a thriving society that's living in accordance with the word of god even if they're not fully even if they're they happen to be pagan but they have for some reason or another the right view of um how society should look at least externally then you can decide to work with them and you, you know america can work with blankistan and try to get rid of the you know the harmful group like they can be called in as backup for their police basically i don't think that's inappropriate at all is that kind of what you're asking it's close enough good answer you got it um so let's unroll the or zoom in into the fractal of warfare here and uh i'm gonna rapid fire some questions at you are you ready yep women in combat yes or no no absolutely not um why well, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment for war. Uh, that's what we're told the word means. You look at a translation of that, it's something more like armor with the intention of going out to battle. A woman shall not wear a man's uh, battle garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, it says not to put on the clothes, but obviously it's, um, it's pointing in a number of different directions. First of all, the whole uh, transgenderism thing, obviously that's within the scope here. Um, that's, that's just obviously evil and wicked and perverse. Um, but also when it comes to warfare, it says minimally not even to put on a man's uh, garments for war. If he doesn't want you to put on the clothes, that means he definitely doesn't want you um, on the front lines. And he doesn't want you doing maybe even administrative support because that means that, at least in our, the way that we structure our military, that you could be called upon to engage in, um, you know, lethal combat, which is, uh, I, I just, I, I can't believe that we are even having this discussion, because it's just obvious that, um, it was obvious from the, from the creation that, like, men are the ones who are to, to go <laughs> into battle and fight things because of how God made them. But we suppress that truth. Um, and because we suppress that truth, he, God has given us his word, which says in uh, Genesis that, you know, the man is supposed to work and to guard, to cultivate and to keep uh, the garden. And that the woman is not created for that. So Adam is made to cultivate and guard the garden. It's like, from what? Well, maybe the snake he's supposed to guard it from, the enemies, uh, the enemies of God at minimum. Um, and so we see from that that only men are authorized to, to go out and, you know, to, to, to guard, to enter a military force. 
So <laughs> women in combat, it just denies the creation order. Because you can always, like, where are the men? Why, why can't a man fill that seat? Because he's supposed to, but why is he not? Side question, that text in Deuteronomy has a contrasting follow-up statement that a man should not put on a woman's cloak. Is that uh, like a man trying to hide himself from military service, or is that just a... Uh... I think that's, I mean, it's definitely within so, the... That's within it, the purview. If the, if the previous one is military attire. Yeah, so I was... Gonna... I, I don't... That's that's kind of a I can't tell if that's a, a meaning question or like a use question. You can definitely use it that way. I don't know if that's what it means though. Gotcha. Is that fair? Yeah. No, that's fine. I, I was Hebrew. just curious. I was curious if if you knew. Yeah, you haven't gotten to Hebrew yet. Understandable. <laughs> um. So a. Uh, lost my train of thought apologies so let's move forward with our our fractalization of things a side question of that one do you think that's the same reason why god has only you know men fulfilling the position of eldership because they're uh, at war as well they're on the front lines of war uh, definitely. You mean like in the church or in the yeah. Old Testament with Israel? In the church. Yes, definitely. Yep. It's cool. a position that only a man can fill. Fun. Only a righteous right. man. Not even all men are qualified. We forget about that. It's only the manly men who can be, um, who can be elders. The righteous men. Yeah. You, you don't want, uh, a bunch of unrighteous men leading your armies into battle because then they will violate all of the principles of just war, won't they? And that, that's just bad for everybody. You don't end, I mean, even on this side of life, you don't end with uh, prosperity for your grandkids in that situation. You're shooting yourself in the foot. But that's not even the main goal. You're dishonoring God. And he doesn't like to be mocked. True. Well, let's continue zooming in. What about warfare on a personal level? Self-defense, is that justified for the Christian to ever engage in self-defense? We have popular Bible teacher, former pastor, uh, now retired John Piper, for example, basically arguing that uh, if someone invaded his home, he would roll over and just let them let them just do whatever instead of yeah. raising his hand to defend his home. Um what, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that if John Piper, if someone broke into his house and he wasn't going to defend his wife with force, perhaps even lethal force, that's just, he's just assuming that all violence is unlawful, which is not a biblical assumption as we've demonstrated, I hope, to the nth degree tonight. I mean, God, God sanctions all kinds of violence. It just has to be oriented toward, you know, evil, suppressing evil. So if we're operating just very broadly within those, um, you know, uh, bounds, then, yeah, defending yourself against evil is uh, at least reasonably justifiable. But then you look at um, Exodus 22, 
sorry i i had this first and then i lost it and then i i'm tracking it down as we speak um you look at exodus 22 23 okay if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he died there shall be no blood guilt for him but if the sun has risen on him there shall be blood guilt for him he shall surely pay um if he has nothing then it should be he shall be sold for uh, sold for his theft so there you have the sort of um perhaps now classic example of a thief breaking in at night and um because you know a lot of people interpret it this way because the sun's not out and you're not able to see what the person's doing even though they're not there necessarily to cause you harm you are able to defend yourself from the potential harm because it's your own home it's dark outside you're not able to get the facts on the table and so um you know scripture says that you the, the blood there shall be no blood guilt for him that means that if he's killed there is not a guilty party um meaning that it's lawful for you to at least defend yourself um but then it gets the sort of qualification phrase which everyone this is this is kind of up for grabs there are two different camps on this it says if the sun is risen on him there shall be no blood blood guilt for him so uh some people think that means well if it's if it's in the daylight then that means you can't strike the guy because you can kind of see what's going on and try to calm the situation down that's kind of the stricter view um the less strict view is that if you basically if you don't report it to the police by like sun up if the sun rises on his dead body um then there's blood guilt on him it just means you're not basically you're not alerting the right people so the qualification phrase is the more difficult one but i think that exodus 22 verse 2 pretty clearly demonstrates that you are able to defend yourself and that that's uh, a lawful category so if someone breaks into john piper's house he had better defend his wife i don't care what he says um i mean if that's the case i just i don't even i don't even know i'm going to tame my tongue real quick before i start popping off here indeed i've got now two sermons you've you've preached on that one i can hold against you <laughs> okay. um so I, yeah, I, I, I feel bad. I, I don't want to bully Piper over that position, but he's the most popular preacher that I know of who articulates it, uh, a, a hardline pacifism. So in that regard, some texts that he might bring up, like Matthew 5, 38 to 40, about turning their cheek, or 1 Peter 2, 21, 24, how would you respond to uh, those particular texts that seem to instruct Christians in some kind of uh, pacifism in the face of violence. Yeah, so I think I think that um, when it's your own when it's your own person, like your own body is sort of under threat because of the gospel. I think that um, it is lawful for you to endure persecution, just like it's lawful for you to flee. Um, so, you know, we, you see that in scripture, you also see it kind of the early churches working through a lot of this stuff. <laughs> they actually have a crisis of the opposite. They don't, they have an anti-self-defense problem where it's actually more pious if you get killed for the gospel because you're following Christ and his sufferings. At times, I think this goes a little bit overboard, but, um, okay, so like turn the other cheek, Jesus says that. 
I think that it means in like persecution situations or in situations where you're going to be like shamed openly, publicly for the gospel, you know, someone shames you by striking you on the face, then it is a perf is it's perfectly appropriate for you to endure like more shame for the gospel instead of trying to like like make it look more attractive by like combat or something someone slaps you on the face and uh like like for the gospel kind of publicly and then you you hit them back or you gun them down or whatever i i think that um you know i don't think that that's a a blank check for the pacifists who just say that like this is a very general principle that has to happen all the time nations have to obey this so when you know when blankistan attacks your country then you better let them attack you twice um <laughs> and you better do it gladly because the gospel that's not what that means um it just means enduring persecution at least at the individual level um you know without recourse what was the other and, text sorry um first peter Two, twenty-one to 24 which is pretty much a quote pretty much a quotation from the old testament it's uh though he was reviled he did not revile jesus not retaliating against his persecutors which i think oh, he, he best answered he didn't yeah he had to accomplish the will of god he had to be crucified yeah and, and you actually see jesus at other times in his life as you said, it's lawful to stay and persevere through the persecution. It's also lawful to flee. You see people, I think I listened to an interview with one of the Canadian pastors who was released from jail recently, uh, who's been arrested multiple times, and and, and they're actually thinking through, um, there's a bunch of churches being burned down in Canada, um, different places, Not I don't know by who, uh, I don't know if they've caught them or not or whatever, but they're many churches being burned down there's pastors being arrested um and and one of the questions that he's having to answer right now is uh do do we do we stay in canada or do we flee to america <laughs> which is kind right. of funny um and he's saying now i i'm pretty much at the point of i'm gonna stay here and I'm thinking through if they come, if they're going to come for me again. I might send my family to America, but I'm going to stay and minister to the people who still live here because mm. I think that's my role as a pastor. But I will not cast judgment on any family within our church who wants to leave. Mm. Uh, they, they, they can leave, and that is a perfectly, they need to make the best decision for their family, and it's lawful biblically for them to stay and fight or to leave, um, to just stay and persevere. Uh, with us or or to lead and when he talks about fighting he's not talking about physical retaliation he's talking about fighting back with the gospel with continuing right. to minister where he's at continuing to preach the word even though he's being persecuted we see this model in the book of acts we see it in the life of jesus where there's um i don't know where it is off the top of my head but there's a point where it says that something to the effect of he perceived that they were seeking to kill him so he fled he hid himself and fled um because it wasn't his time yet, obviously that's like the reason, but it wasn't wrong for him in that situation to do that. So 
I think yeah, one of my one of my professors says along those lines uh, in ancient church history when there's like Roman persecution and stuff, they had to face this question of do we stick around? How many teachers need to stick around? Because we need people to minister to the people who conscientiously want to endure the persecution, even though it's bad for them. But also we need to guard the deposit of faith, guard the deposit of faith that's been entrusted to us. And so some ministers need to leave and minister to the people who are leaving. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. You see that in church history. It's funny. So shotgun questions over uh, send us home because we, we think about warfare on, on a big nation scale level. Most people listening to this probably will never be in a situation where they've got to make that decision. Now they might need to evaluate and maybe even engage in pro, you know, lawful protest against their leaders for engaging in an unjust war. That might be a situation they find themselves in in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to know, but in all reality, it might not be that applicable. Uh, but we narrowed it down, you know, to self-defense, self-violence uh, on, on a personal level. And then we also see a lot of scripture passages in the New Testament. Um, which we didn't cover these a lot because it wasn't abundantly relevant, but that that the apostles use a lot of warfare language talking about our, our struggle against sin, um, the process of our sanctification. So thinking it with that in mind, and some of these principles apply there, uh, give me a, a last word. What is the goal of Christian warfare? Christian warfare exists to expand the kingdom of God in the hearts of men and to uh, punish evil and wrong and wrongdoing insofar as it's you know possible. So the kingdom of God being that deposit of faith with which we've been entrusted, taking root in men. So we are to um, see that in ourselves and in our church communities and the people around us. So that's discipleship and evangelism and church discipline and ordinary means of grace type stuff. And then also um, it plays out at the civil level where you are fighting for, um, you, are, you are trying to accomplish the will of God on earth, which is that, um, we live in covenant with him and therefore at peace with one another and the goal of warfare in that sense is peace it is the 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 uh final or some say eschatological quote unquote uh peace that will be brought when god crushes all of his enemies under his feet the last of whom is death and every tear that has been shed uh, will be dried and uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the end to which you know, we strive in every area, including even warfare. Amen. Well, thank you, brother, for joining me. I know that you have to depart, so I will have to answer questions on your behalf, but I will not speak for you directly. <laughs> um. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, sorry, I have to jet. I have a uh, I have a meeting here. It's five ten my time, but I guess it's like eight ten your time. So, <laughs> thanks for having me.
Yeah. Thank you. And I will talk to you soon. Alrighty. Bye guys. Right. Well, everyone send your hearty thanks to Andrew for stopping by and doing a, a good bit of research there. He had a lot of notes. I, uh, we went a little long, but I, I wanted to try to try to get him through his own notes um, there. And I because I thought they were important for him to share with all of you. So I hope you learned something. And uh, I will try my best to field questions on the subject. Starting, starting now. Let me look back through. I was in chat a little more than I normally would have been. Um, Ari, you asked about joining the Navy. I, I think that it's appropriate. Uh, if the way that the U.S. military works is, there are so many paths you can take, and you can take them up front. You can know you're going to go into it. You know that you're going to. Um, enter into a non-combatant position and that it's basically a career field. Um, while I would not come, I would not recommend doing it with a branch that is where it is more possible that you would get conscripted into a, a combat situation like the Marines. Uh, my, my grandfather served in the Pacific in World War II and he was a cook. He went in as a cook. That was his job. And he ended up getting uh, a prestigious award for blowing up a pillbox, <laughs> which means he stopped being a cook at a certain point. Um, so, <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't because his job description ever changed. He was still a cook when he blew up that pillbox. Um, but that that was World War II in the Pacific. Um, warfare has changed. Things has, things have changed a lot. The military has changed a lot. Um, where it is not the same context or the same kind of thing. So, um, but if you were like, sign me up for the special forces, I, I would say that that would be un un unbiblical. Yeah, because those guys are definitely killing somebody. Yeah, a lot of people join up to pay for college and things like that. And um, But the, the great thing about the way the, the U.S. military tends to work is that you can... If you, you score high enough on your ASVAB, you can basically pick your job um, if you work, you know how to work with the recruiter well. So um, I almost did it for that reason to get me through college. Almost. Glad I didn't now, but, but yeah. All right. Uh, Jake and Mommy asking, securing good for God and cost-benefit, is there any cost too much for the good of God, and how would you weigh that cost? He mentioned it, but I didn't understand how he evaluated So he didn't explain, he didn't give a lot of, exa of, of examples of what he meant by that. Um, so, so that was within the, he was explaining the historical just war theorist principles of how to decide when to go to war. And one of the elements of considering whether a nation should enter into war with another um, was cost-benefit. But uh, here's an example. 
if you have if you're attacked by another nation you're you're in charge of a, a little country somewhere in the world i don't know where and you get attacked um and the nation is bigger than you bigger badder better weapons better military everything if you go to war with them a bunch of people are going to die a lot a massive amount of people you're, you're going to get stomped you're going to get crushed you're not even going to put a dent in them trying to resolve it through other means first would be the right thing to do before you jump to shooting back um i think a good example of this was the american revolution they tried through other means besides violence to resolve things and then you've got the boston massacre things like that happen it's like okay clearly these peaceful means are not going to work they're bigger than us they're badder than us but we you know uh have a just cause in, in, in at least in, in their minds and uh so we're, we're going to go to war for it so that's what he meant by cost benefit was um before you just jump straight to war gauging okay if we're going to lose tons of people we need to exhaust every other option before we just try to um if if, if we're going to end up getting a lot of people killed we, we need to think through other options of how to resolve this stop You there, Josh? Oh no. I think Josh has, um, mic cord. Oh no. Just, uh, just gotta unplug it and plug it back in easy peasy. Hello. There you are. You're back. Yeah, this happens if and because it's on my lap on my laptop, it's just moving enough where the cord is shifting and the connection goes out. Um, where was I? When when, when did I die? <laughs> uh, it seemed like you you answered the question of like the. I guess going through the different options and then and then um not trying to like have a bunch of people die before you exhaust all your other methods. Oh that's right. about where you cut out. Uh yeah. So the follow up question was moral decision or just wisdom? Um it's a moral decision if you decide to try to punch back at the bigger guy without exhausting things and you know that you're going to get a bunch of people killed, uh, it would be wrong to do that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it is. There is a moral component to uh, 
to it. It's not always clear cut um, what needs to be done. I, I gave a pretty easy to decide example. Uh, usually warfare is much more complicated, but yeah. All right, what else? Any other questions besides everyone telling me that I died? Uh, all right. I'm not seeing anything. Yeah. We've been we've been going for a while. So I guess um oh people are typing. I'm, I'm seeing typers. We we got typers. We got Gretchy faking us out with the the emotes. With the dang dog. As always. As always. Classic grudgy son move. Uh, how should young men think when faced with registering for the draft? Well, um, I haven't thought about that a lot. I think that I had to do it. I can't remember if I did, to be honest. I'm pretty sure I had to, right? Um, uh, yeah, with, with the current state of the world and the current state of the US military in the direction that it's heading. Um I don't know. The the likelihood of them getting drafted is pretty low, even if they register for it. So there's that. Just because of uh you know if we go to war with a nation that has as powerful military as, as us, it's gonna be nuclear. So you know <laughs> there's that. Um but uh, yeah, I don't know. I th there's a the reason I'm having a hard time answering is there's something in the back of my mind saying that there is conscription that is in the Bible and that conscription was a valid thing, but I would need to investigate it before I answer. I did not research for tonight. <laughs> Andrew did, so <laughs> I, I would be more confident about answering the question if I had done so. Um, he might know off the top of his head. Uh, Samaman12 is asking, what do you think about David having fought too many wars to build the temple? War still affects us. Absolutely it does. Um, yeah, I guess don't, don't walk away from tonight thinking that uh, warfare is pretty <laughs> or it's something that um, we need to just dive headfirst into. Um, and and David being the, the man of war, not being able to build the temple. There's a lot of theological stuff behind that as well. It's not just that he, um, it wasn't that he had, you know, just like PTSD from killing people or something. That's why he couldn't build the temple, but um, he wasn't permitted to by God for a reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's uh, that'd be something worth diving into as well. But that would be a again, it's something off the top of my head. Not going to go into a ton of detail on because I don't feel confident answering. I, I could have some thoughts on it, but 
I don't want to just riff off the top of my head and say things that I'm not sure of. But I can tell you it was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, there is a lot of symbology, typology, things of that nature going on there. Um, with him being not permitted to, to do that. Well, no more typers, no more questions. Any typers? Got some more typing. Double typing. <laughs> Craig says diapers. LOL. All right, I think you're good. Yeah, I think. Yep. Okay, that's a question that won't yep. be answered, Cast. All right, um, <clears throat> we can officially be done.